And we're going to be looking at James chapter 5, James chapter 5, and you'll need a Bible to follow along, and so Larry and Jean and Len have Bibles, so get their attention, they'll get one to you, so you can look with us at James chapter 5. But let me remind you of what's uh, coming up over the next few weeks. It's a busy time for us now that the summer is ending. And the fall is upon us. This is the busiest time of our year. And so here are the things that are happening. This afternoon at 2.30 is our quarterly family meeting, congregational meeting at Huron Baptist in Flat Rock. One week from tomorrow is our Labor Day picnic at 3 o'clock at the uh, Thorn Park at the corner of King and Telegraph. And in your bulletin, it tells you what we ask you to bring, a side dish, a dessert, and a bottle of pop, a, a beverage, and the church will provide the main dish for that. All are welcome. We always have a good time with it. One week from today, uh, I am going to be offering our three-week newcomers orientation. And as the name suggests, it's for folks that are new to our church, and it's an orientation to who we are and what we believe and what we're about and where we came from and where we hope to go. And so I go uh, through a booklet of material that we give you over three weeks, and that'll start next Sunday, so the 6th, the 13th, and the 20th. And if you're, if you're not a member of our church, but you've been coming, then I would encourage you to come to that. And I emphasize that coming to that is for informational purposes. It doesn't obligate you to join our church, but it does give you information that should assist you in making that decision. So that's what it's about, and if, as you leave today, if you would let me know that you're planning on being in there, that would help me a bit, because the Tell me how many booklets uh, to make for the class. But I'll be leading that. The next three weeks, we will be in another room. So just like the young married types for the last seven weeks for their class have been going to the other side of the building, for those three weeks, uh, me and my group will be going to the other side of the building. The young married class and home builders class end today. So next Sunday, while I'm teaching that, they'll all be back in here with the rest of you. And we have uh, uh, next week, during this hour, a brother Bill Bork is going to be here. And he is going to give a presentation on a recent trip that he and his family made to visit our missionary in India, Daniel Kumar. And some of you know the Bork family, but they've made several trips out there. They're a very dedicated family. They spend their family's vacation money to go to the mission in India. And they'll be giving a report on that next week. So that'll be next Sunday during this hour. And then two weeks from today during this hour, Brother Zach Hamilton, part of our pastors in training, is going to teach. And then three weeks from today, another of our pastors in training, Matt Owen, is going to teach the class in here. So that's what's coming up over the next few weeks during this hour. And then um, on September 27th, we're going to have a, it's, it's a weird time during this hour. It's just a different, but we need to do it. And that is... We're going to spend that 45 minutes uh, talking about a bit about our emergency response plan for our church. And just like schools have to do that and have a drill and all that, we have to do it as well. Okay, In case anything ever happened, we want everybody to know what to do. And we've got a whole security plan and a team, and they, they've been doing great work over many months to implement a plan for how to exit and all that sort of stuff. So I'm going to give some biblical uh, underpinning for why that's important to do. And then uh, we're going to tell you a little bit about the plan itself. And then the most important feature is at the end of that hour, on the 27th, we're actually going to have a drill. Weather permitting, we're going to go outside. And that will be the end of the day. 
So we'll say, we'll give you time since it's a fake drill. Get your Bible, get your stuff, and go out the exit we told you. And your children will do the same thing. And so they'll be going out a different exit, and then we have a designated spot outside where we all meet so that if anything ever happened, heaven forbid, we would all know what to do, okay? So bear with us on that. I know it's different. I know it's weird. I wish we didn't have to do it, but we do. So that'll be on the 27th. And then the week after that, October 4th, we will everybody be in together. Young married class has been over for a while. Uh, Newcomers is over. We're done with the emergency response thing. And October 4th, we'll have a 12-week series on what the Bible teaches about relationships. And it's called Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. That's the name of the series. We'll be sending mailers out to the community to invite folks to come to that. You'll have a booklet, a notebook to go through for that. And uh, we'll be covering that uh, October, November, and most of December as well. Okay? So that's what's coming up in this class. Uh, Inserted in your program today, you had a couple of things. A card for community groups. That's our Sunday night home groups. And that card, uh, we ask you to check off uh, whether or not you want to participate, if you need to have somebody call you to tell you more about what it is, any of that. But right now is the time for open enrollment for our Sunday evening community groups. And you would help us greatly if you would fill that out and turn it in at our resource table over, over here or at the welcome table on the, on the way out, either one. But if you would fill that out today and turn that in, then we will get with you and let you know what they are and let you know if you've said you want to be a part of one, which group you will be in when we resume the Sunday night community home groups on September 20th. So those will resume in three weeks, and we're taking these three weeks to reorganize them. We do that every year at this time. So this is what we call open enrollment. And then the groups meet together for a year, and then next year at this time, we reform them, we reform them again, okay? So see that card. And the other insert that you had in your bulletin was a colorful one for our Kids for Truth program. And that's our midweek children's program that will resume on September the 16th, Wednesday night the 16th, with an open house at Patrick Henry Middle School. Patrick Henry is where we're going to have our midweek program. So we're going to be here on Sundays, over there on Wednesdays, Um, And actually, that works out better, believe it or not. Even though it's two different locations, I wouldn't want to be here on Wednesday. And the reason is it's too busy at a high school on a weeknight. There's just too much extracurricular stuff going on, too much sports going on, just too many bodies moving around. So we're better off being around the corner at Patrick Henry for our our midweek program, okay? But the open house is on the 16th, and that is designed to familiarize you with the Kids for Truth program. It's a fun night as well, so even if your kids were in it last year and they know what it is, they'll come and have a good time. And also it gives you an opportunity to register uh, for the next year, if you so choose. And then we'll start in earnest the following week with our midweek program. On September the 23rd, Wednesday night, at Patrick Henry, Kids for Truth, High Impact for Teens, and our Community Institute for Adults resumes uh, at that time as well. Okay, So I told you there's a lot of stuff coming up. Just keep your eye on the calendar and on the bulletin. Today we conclude our series in the book of James. So for these last uh, seven weeks, while the Young Married and Home Builders class have been going on, the rest of you have been with me going through uh, a, a review of the book of James. And tonight or today we're going to conclude that with the last two verses of the book in chapter 5. We'll look at verses 19 and 20 in just a bit. 
But let me remind you how, what the book is about so that you know how these last two verses fit into it because they do have a logical connection to everything that has preceded. The theme of the book of James is this, tests of a living faith. You could, you could summarize the entire five chapters of the book of James that way, that those five chapters give tests of a living faith. Now, here's what that means. James presents, we, we ticked off nine actual tests in the five chapters that demonstrate the reality, the genuineness, the authenticity of what we claim to believe. You all remember that belief or believe and faith are synonyms in the New Testament, same word. So when we say tests of a living faith, you could supply belief for faith, tests of a living belief, tests as to whether or not you, what you claim to believe or what I claim to believe is real, authentic, alive. And James gives nine of these tests, and we've seen a few of them. In chapter 1, he gives the test of our response to trials. And so he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you fall into trials of various kinds. And here's why you can do that. Consider it pure joy. Not because the trials are pleasant, but because of what he says in verse 3. Because you know that the testing of your faith, of what you believe, works patience. And patience, when it has finished its work, develops maturity. So here's why I can have joy even in the midst of difficulty, because I know God is up to something and something good. He's producing patience, developing character, and maturity in me and in you. And thus we get the theme right in the third verse of the book, Tests of a Living Faith. The testing of your faith develops patience, and uh, if you continue to respond properly to the trials, maturity as well. And so there are a number of these tests. One is how we respond to trials. Another one, beginning in verse 19, excuse me, beginning, of, beginning in verse 16 of chapter 1, is our response to the word of God. So God has given us his word. Through his word, the truth of his word, he has given us spiritual life, the passage says, given us new birth. And someone who really believes in Christ, someone who really has an authentic, genuine relationship to Christ, responds to the word of God then accordingly responds in obedience to the word of God. It's another test of the vitality, the authenticity, genuineness, reality of our faith. And then in chapter two, we saw another test, and that is to favoritism in our relationships with other people. Verse one of chapter two says, do not show favoritism, do not show partiality. And we saw then that that word partiality, favoritism, literally means do not receive a face. That's what the Greek word means. And what it means is don't judge someone and relate to someone based upon external appearances. And so we beat on, I beat on pretty heavily things like racism at that time. That racism then is unchristian. That, and I pointed out from Acts chapter 17 that the truth of the matter is all of us are really from the same set of parents, Adam and Eve, biblically. God made of one blood all men who in his world dwell. And so we're all related, in fact. And so God condemns then racism, uh, dealing with people on the basis of social status and so on. And then in chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, there is the response to just works in general, particularly works of, of philanthropy, help to those who are, who are in need. 
Chapter 3, last week, we saw that faith is tested by its demonstration of, of wisdom, particularly in the use of the tongue, the way we talk. The whole chapter is about that, verses 1 through, through 18. Now you get into chapter 4 and 5, and we're, we don't have time. This is the last week. But there are other tests there. Our, our, our uh, imitation of worldliness at the beginning of chapter 4. In chapter 4 and verse 4, James says this, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? That's what chapter 4 and verse 4 says. And then in chapter 5, it talks about those who are wealthy and the issue of pride as a test of, of faith. And now we come to the very end of the book, last two verses. Chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. And notice what it, what it says. James 5, 19 and 20. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Let's unpack those two verses in our final session on the book of James. I want you to notice this, first of all. It says in verse 19, if one of you... And so just in general, if, if any one of, of you, you, plural, who are part of the assembly to whom he is writing. If you remember back in chapter 2, when we saw the teaching to not show favoritism or partiality, James gave an illustration. What if one comes into your meeting in verse 10? He says, what if one comes into your meeting and he's in, he's in shabby clothes and in verse 2, he mentions your gathering, your meeting as well. And that word gathering or meeting is the word from which we get our English word synagogue. Some of you who were here then may remember me saying that. And so he, these are Jewish people who have come to Jesus and who are gathering together and they still call their meeting place, in fact, sometimes the synagogue. And now at the end of the book, James says, my brothers, if any one of you, so who are the you then? Any one of you who are part of this assembly, who are part of this gathering, who are part of this church that meets together on a regular basis. If any one of you should wander from the truth, and then notice what it, what it says, and someone brings him back. So the potential is that any one of you, to apply it here, any one of us, could wander from the truth. And someone bring him back. So I want you to notice the mutual responsibility here. The assumption of what James is saying is, is that you are involved in a group of people, a church, an assembly, with whom you have relationship, people that you know and they know you, such that if any one of you wanders from the truth, any of the rest of you can bring them back. If any of you, then, then someone among you is to bring them back. You say, wow, I thought that's what you're supposed to do. Isn't that why we have a pastor? To like bring people back? Well, certainly I'm part of that. 
I'm part of those who are addressed here. And there's a sense in which I will get involved in issues like that more than, uh, more than you might just because of my position. That's all true. But it certainly is not exclusive to pastors. Notice the beginning of verse 19. Whose responsibility is this? The first two words, verse 19. My brothers. Not my fellow elders. James was an elder, a pastor in the church in Jerusalem. But it's not me and my fellow pastors alone who do this. It is we collectively brothers and sisters who are in relationship with one another in the assembly, the church. The assumption is that we are relating to one another. We know one another. We have relationship with each other. We're carrying out the one another commands that are given throughout the New Testament. Bear one another's burdens. Forgive one another. Pray for one another. Love one another. Submit to one another. Accept one another. On and on it goes. So the assumption is that you are not and I am not a lone range Christian who punches, as it were, his or her religious clock on Sunday and then takes off and nobody knows you and you don't know them. A cursory reading through your New Testament assumes that there are relationships amongst God's people in the assembly and that you avail yourself then of those relationships. And it's out then of that relationship that James can write. James 5.19, my brothers, all y'all, all of you. If any one of you wanders, then some of you, someone or ones among you, is now in a position to bring that wanderer back to the Lord. So one of the first things some of us need to do as we look at James' word, word here is to repent of our individualism. And individualism, I just simply mean it's me and Jesus. There's this place I show up at on Sunday when I feel like it. And they're nice enough, but I only want about an hour's worth of those people. And the guy does okay, you know, when he, when he teaches the Bible, and so that's why I go. But don't expect me to get involved with any of you folks. And that's contrary to the New Testament. The New Testament assumes we are in relationship, you are in relationship with one another in God's church. And out of that then flows some mutual obligations to each other, one of which is in James 5, 19. If any of you wanders, someone brings. So the first thing is don't exempt yourself from that. That includes you. If you are in the phrase, my brothers, in verse 19, then this command includes you, includes me. Okay? So my brothers, if any of you should wander, someone should bring him, someone should bring him back. So here's what that means. It means that you are part of the body, and yes, in answer to the age-old question, am I my brother's keeper? What's the answer? God's answer is yes. We are to look out for the best interests of one another. And let me just give you a couple of passages that teach that. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Galatians 6, 1 says this. My brothers, that's how it starts. If anyone is caught in a sin, 
you who are spiritual, that is mature, should seek to restore him gently. And so you have another command that assumes we're in relationship and someone is wandering. And we, the body, act, and you as part of that body act to bring this person back in line with with the truth. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, teach the same thing. That we have a collective responsibility to to one another. So, here's then what that means, guys and gals. There comes a time when to say, I'm going to stay out of it. Or I'm just going to mind my own business. There comes a time when, when saying that becomes disobedience to God. Let me say that again. There comes a time when saying, I'm just going to mind my own business and I'm going to stay out of it, becomes disobedience to God. And that's the more comfortable approach, isn't it? We see someone who is sinning. They're part of our fellowship. We see them sinning. We have a relationship with them, presumably, because we pursued relationship a la the other commands of the New Testament. But I don't want to get involved because it's hard. And so I don't say anything. Or I have a family member who's a professing believer. They may not be in our assembly, but God has placed them in your circle of influence. And they're sinning. They may be sinning by refusing to reconcile, for instance with someone else. It's sin to do that. And you know that. But you say, I just don't want to get involved. I want to mind my own business. I'll let you take care of it. And God says, if you see somebody wander from the truth, then you're to seek to do something about it. There does come a time, friends, where minding your own business, saying I'm going to stay out of it, becomes disobedience. Now, how do I know when that time is? How do I know when I should get involved and when I shouldn't? Here's one gauge that has helped me to determine when I should and when I shouldn't. Each of us has these two circles of relationship with folks, two. The first and widest one is our circle of concern. That is, I've got all kinds of relationships, all kinds of things about which I have a legitimate concern. So as part of this church, you should have a legitimate concern, for instance, about what happens in the life of everybody in in our church. That they're growing spiritually, that they're moving ahead for Christ, that they're not wandering from the truth. It's your circle of concern. You're concerned just by virtue of being part of this church about that. But then you've got your circle of responsibility, and that's a subset. That's a circle within your circle of concern, your circle of responsibility. You see, God has lots of relationships for us, but he moves people in and out of our circle of responsibility. That's how I'm able to manage my prayer list. I'm concerned about anybody who has a need. But if I prayed for anybody that I know who has any sort of need, guess what? I'd never get through my list. And so the way I actually manage my prayer list is I ask the question now. 
this person is in my circle of concern, are they also in my circle of responsibility? And God moves people in and out of your circle of responsibility. We've had people who have been in our church, of course, and who have physically moved, relocated. I'm still concerned. And as I remember them, I pray for them. But God has providentially moved them into another circle of responsibility. And as you think about it then, your circle of responsibility can become fairly clear, fairly easily. Obviously, your family, circle of responsibility. And then there is your church family, circle of responsibility. But within that, you're going to have some relationships within the church whereby you have a closer association than others. And so it would not be good for you to walk up to somebody that you've never talked to at church and say, I want to talk to you about your sin. But the assumption here is that you're doing what I said earlier. You're pursuing relationships within the body. Having established those, you now have a circle of responsibility to those that you are coming to know by virtue of those relationships. And now, my brothers, if anyone of the people in the body as a whole wanders from the truth, someone who has a relationship in the circle of responsibility should move into action on behalf of that individual. And so there comes a time when saying, mind your own business, stay out of it, becomes disobedience. Circle of concern versus circle of responsibility. This is called, what I heard one preacher call many years ago, the ministry of confrontation. And I heard him say that from the pulpit, and it stuck with me. All the, I mean, It's been like 25 years ago that I heard a guy say that, and it stuck with me. The ministry of confrontation. You say, how can confrontation be a ministry? Confrontation is bad. Not necessarily. I mean, if this, if this passage is incumbent upon us, and of course it is, and others like it, Galatians 6.1, if someone's caught in a sin, seek to restore them, then that requires that you go to the individual and that you confront them with their sin. But the key is how you confront them. You confront them lovingly. You confront them not as one who's a superior and who's got it all together, but you confront them as a brother or a sister who is also struggling. And so here is a good definition of the ministry of confrontation. It's loving confrontation with the truth for the purpose of change. Loving confrontation with the truth for the purpose of change. You want to see this person become more like Jesus. You are presumably in the process of becoming more like Jesus and struggling to do so. And you see this sin as impairing that progress. And so because God has placed them in your circle of responsibility and has commanded us then to spring into action, you lovingly go to your brother or sister and you say, I'm concerned about this. Can we talk? And here's what's going on. And here's what God says. Loving confrontation with the truth for the purpose of changing out. Those are the people to whom you do this, people that are in your circle of responsibility, and you need to be, and I need to be busy about creating a circle of responsibility, not punching the clock and leaving. Otherwise, we're being disobedient to Scripture. Those are the people to whom we do this, but then what are the issues over which we do this? 
So let's assume now that I'm doing all the stuff that we just talked about. I'm establishing relationships within the body. I'm participating. God is giving me a circle of responsibility now within that. And I see all kinds of things happen, you know, to my, with my brothers and sisters. All kinds of stuff that's annoying. I wish they didn't do this. Is that what I go to them with? Listen, I want to confront you because you're annoying. You got this really annoying habit. Every time we, okay, and that is, that ain't it. Because notice what verse 20 is saying. It's, it's if, verse 19, excuse me, if any wanders from what? The truth. It's not, does someone violate my standard of etiquette? It's further, they have objectively wandered from the truth. Not, I think they might have. Not, I've made up motives for this person. That I'm pretty sure are motivating them in what they do, and now I'm going to come and question their motives. You're not making stuff up. It's not annoyances. It is sin. As compared to God's word, it is wandering from the truth. And so then, I've got this circle of responsibility, and someone in my circle of responsibility is disobeying, violating what God says, wandering from the truth. That is when I engage in loving confrontation with the truth for the purpose of change. And so, here's what that means then. If everything I've said is true, which is dubious, but just assume it is, that everything I just said is right, then that really redefines the way we look at love. I mean, the way we look at love is, can't we, we, we take the Rodney King approach to love. You guys remember that? The guy who was beaten out in South Central L.A. and you know, he gave this news conference and he basically had one line in his news conference, which was, can we just all get along? And so for many of us, we have bought into the lie, frankly, that love is let's all get along. Love is the path of least resistance. Go along to get along. See no evil. Don't get involved. Mind your own business. Okay? That's the way we, that's the way we look at it. It's more comfortable. It's what the world says. If you come and tell somebody this is what you're doing, and as a brother or sister who cares about you, I'm coming to talk to you about that on behalf of Jesus as an ambassador for Christ, incarnating his love to you. I'm, I'm coming to do that. You come and do that. Sometimes you'll get the response. How can you be so harsh? Don't you know what love is? Love is minding your own business, staying out of it. How do I know this is the case? I've gotten that response. But see, the success of this endeavor is not based upon the response of the individual, is it? The success is based upon obedience to Jesus. If I've done what Jesus has said in the way that Jesus has said it, I can't control how the individual responds. All I can do is control whether or not I do what he has told me to do. So this redefines love. Love is not just go along to get along, take the path of least resistance, the easier route. It is not that. 
And so verse 20 tells us what love is. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. You say, how does it redefine love? I don't even see the word love in there. Well, if you just hold your finger here and turn a couple of pages forward to 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter 4 and verse 8. Above all. <coughs> so whatever follows here would appear to be pretty important. Above what? <laughs> Above all. Love each other deeply. And what does love do? Covers a multitude of sins. Same phrase used in James chapter 5 and verse 20. Whoever brings a wanderer back from the error of his way will save him from death. I'll talk about what that means in a minute. And cover over a multitude of sins. Or to put it another way, you can substitute love for bringing a wanderer back. Bringing a wanderer back is the same thing as love which covers over a multitude of sins. You go, really? It's the loving thing to do. To get involved in the life of a person and have the result, the consequence, the effect that sin is covered. The Bible appears to teach that. And all the while you thought love covers a multitude of sins meant love sweeps it under the rug. I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. Christians think that the Bible teaches love covers a multitude of sins means the most spiritual thing to do is sweep it under the rug. Cover it up. But James is saying love takes action to bring a wanderer back from the error of his way and that covers a multitude of sins. Well, how does that fit? Well, that connects with that, la that phrase in the middle of verse 20, will save him from death. The death, well, first let's remind ourselves what death means. What does death mean in the, in the Bible? If you have this one word, every time you see the word death, you'll do really well. Death means separation. In the Bible, death means separation. And there are different kinds of death, different kinds of separation. So there is physical death. Physical death is the separation of the spirit from the body, the immaterial from the material. So Jesus, when he died physically, said, Father, on the cross, into thy hands I commit my spirit. His spirit left. And he died. Separation of the spirit from the body. That's physical death. But then there's spiritual death. Spiritual death is the separation of the individual from God. Salvation, then, remedies in the here and now the separation spiritually from God. We have a, re, a reconciled, reconciled relationship with God when we come to Christ. We were separated, now we're reconciled. In the future, the physical separation, physical death will be done because we'll be reunited with our, with our spirits and our bodies, with a resurrected body. And then there's a third kind of death in the Bible. 
It's called eternal death. Eternal death. And that is eternal. What's a death mean? Separation from God. Spiritual death is separation from God. Eternal death is continual, non-ending spiritual death. Separation from God. This is the man or woman who does not receive Jesus Christ in order to be reconciled. Now, James 5.20. He who brings back a sinner from the error of his way will save him, save, rescue him from separation, from death, and cover over a multitude of sins. So let me ask you, when you have a relationship with Christ, as most of us do here, we've come to Christ, and now we've been reconciled to Christ. Does the Bible teach that when we sin, that impairs our relationship, that, that affects our fellowship with him? It does teach that. First John chapter 1. If we say, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we lie, and the truth is not in us. But if we sin, we should confess our sin. And if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or to put it another way, we restore fellowship with God. So here's what's going on. You see a brother or sister who's sinning. They're not just annoying you. It's not just you think they're sinning. And you see it because you have a relationship with them. You have actively pursued a circle of influence and responsibility within the church the body, and having seen that now, because you love them, because love covers a multitude of sins, you spring into action and you go to them and you say, this is what I'm saying. Can I talk to you about that from God's word? And you seek to bring them back. And if they respond to you, now they have been restored to fellowship, perhaps with on a horizontal plane with people. Maybe they've offended people. But also with God. Because their fellowship has been impacted by this sin in their life. Now, would you guys agree with me? If all of that's true, then this ministry of confrontation is really a worthwhile endeavor, isn't it? You're doing this not to be nosy, not to be holier than thou. You're doing it because you care about a brother or sister. Now, what is, they, they wander from the truth. It's a violation of God's word, and this is my last point. In particular, what James has in mind in his five chapters in the book of James is if you see anybody within the assembly who is not manifesting the nine things that I've already laid out. Remember I said he gives these nine tests of a living faith? But you see somebody who's not doing that. So, chapter 3, somebody who's not bridling their tongue. That would be one of the wandering from the truth. I've laid out the truth to you. And if anybody doesn't do this, if you see anybody who's not fulfilling what I've laid out here, not passing the tests of a living, authentic, real faith that I've laid out in these five chapters, they're wandering from the truth. If anyone is not producing works, chapter 2, verses 14 to 26 in their lives that show a reality to their faith, something different about them from the rest of the culture, the rest of the world. They're wandering from the truth. If anyone is not responding to trials in a way that considers it pure joy, 
but rather in this trial now, they are joyless, impatient, not developing patience, impatient, angry, perhaps bitter. In the first hour, you all remember what I said about confessing in perverse ways? And bitterness is confessing other people's sins. And anger is confessing sin at God. And you've got anger and you've got, uh, and you've got, uh, you've got bitterness and you've got anger and you've got gossip confessing other people's sins to other people. You see somebody doing that. And they're not responding to their trials properly. They're angry, angry at God, impatient, not joyful, joyless. These are the kinds of things that James has in mind of someone who is wandering from the truth that I have laid out in five chapters. And when you see that happen, you have an obligation to go to a brother or sister to bring them back. Now, I'm done in 60 seconds. But just think about the two paths that person can go. They wander from the truth, and nobody cares enough to do the hard thing of coming after them. And so they just keep going. Who knows where that ends? Versus the other path that somebody sat in a Sunday school lesson on James 5, 19 and 20 and now says, yes, Lord, that's what you say about our relationships, about people wandering from the truth and about my relationship with them and me going to them and receiving those who might come to me. Yes, Lord, you say that. Now there's a different path. That person has been, been arrested, as it were, on that path. And they don't go that path. But rather, they turn back to the Lord. What a marvelous thing. The Bible says that the angels rejoice in heaven when one center, one sinner repents. And we ought to have that kind of rejoicing as well when we kick into gear the ministry of confrontation in the lives of others. Let's pray. We're done. Lord, thank you for this time and for this portion of your word summarizing all that our brother James has said in his marvelous letter about what real belief, real faith looks like. Lord, I pray that you would grant me the courage, uh, grant me, Lord, the love to do what is what we have seen today out of love for Christ because I want to see his name magnified and glorified and his image reflected in his people. Help me to be willing to do this. And out of love for brothers and sisters, not wanting them to go down this path and cause themselves further harm, cause the body harm, most important, cause your name harm. I'm willing to get involved. I'm willing to do the hard thing. All the while, week in and week out, day in and day out, I'm seeking to establish relationships out of which this kind of ministry can take place. So help us, Lord, in this group to commit first to being people of relationship in your body establishing a circle of responsibility, and then, Lord, help us to commit to carrying out that responsibility for their good and for your glory. Go with us this week. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.